The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details. What would you do if you knew you were going to die or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are and you do. No mai, hari mai, and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wish you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Ko Kerry Sunderland Toku Inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I'm the host and producer of the show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titoihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is produced with the support of the Tasman District Creative Community Scheme, so big thanks to them. And if you'd like to find out how to get involved or wish to support the show in other ways, please go to the website, which is deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Kia ora and thank you for joining me for Episode 12 of Season 2 of Deathwalker's Guide to Life. In today's show, I'll be speaking with Deathwalker Linda Hanna founder of Living Legacies. Linda has been a death walker for about 20 years, well before Natural Death Care Centre founder Zenith Farago even coined the term. For at least two decades, Linda has interrogated the link between our relationship with mortality and the health of our planet. Her raison d'etre is, dying shouldn't cost us the earth. It's also a double entendre. She not only advocates for different ways of body disposal, but also supports families who want to organise DIY funerals. But before I kōrero with Linda, it's time for the first bookend, Death in Print. This episode, I'd like to introduce you to the continually evolving long-form essay titled Facing Extinction. Written by former journalist and current Dharma teacher Catherine Ingram, it was first published on her website in 2019 and is now updated every month as new data emerges about the crises we face. The essay is available in both print and audio format, although the audio format hasn't been updated since she originally published the essay three years ago. As a journalist from 1982 to 1994, she specialised in social and environmental issues, as did I, at the beginning of my career, almost a decade later. We both wrote about global warming, the phrase most used in those days, and Ingram writes, because it seemed a far-off threat, we could intellectually discuss it without fear that it would affect our own lives in terribly significant ways. As time marched on, I began to awaken to how fast the climate was changing and how negative would be its impacts. Time had marched on a bit by the time I too was writing about global warming and the emotional consequences were a bit closer to home for me. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I was an intern working in the public affairs unit at Shell Oil Company at the time, fresh out of my three-year degree at RMIT. I was assisting a senior manager to research and write position papers about the emerging science for top-level executives. But when my friends from university started protesting out the front of Shell's corporate HQ in Melbourne, I knew it was time to move on. 
But I still have a copy of one of the position papers I wrote and it was pretty clear that the company needed to act and to act soon. Of course, this was almost 30 years ago now and we've been barreling along on the tragic trajectory ever since. But back to Ingram's essay. At the beginning, she compares the impending extinction of our way of life, if not our species, with a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. In other words, it's not definite that we will die soon, but it is highly probable. Then she explores the role of courage, the dangers of distraction and denial, and makes practical suggestions about how we can navigate our way through the inevitable social unrest that will result from catastrophic climate events. Of course, they're already happening. This year, here in both Aotearoa and in Australia, we've seen how communities have banded together, both in the top of the south and in my Australian soul home, Byron Bay, to support each other following severe flooding. Later in the essay, Ingram sets us straight that there are no techno-fixes and urges us to let go of the fantasy that green technology or an escape path to Mars will save us. She urges us to let go of our obsession with leaving a legacy and shift our focus to being tender with each other, especially as we all embark on experiencing anticipatory grief. That is, grief for what has yet to come, a concept I explored with counsellor Becky Orr-Jennison in episode one of season two. I urge you to read Facing Extinction, but if reading is not your thing, don't despair. I will have a solution for you later in today's show in the Death on Screen segment. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. My guest on today's show is Linda Hanna, who is an environmental activist and social entrepreneur. She founded Living Legacies in 2001 to change the funeral industry to a more sustainable model, to empower families to care for their own dead, and even to try and reverse climate change, which is a huge goal and perhaps monumental, in fact. But we'll hear soon about how those goals have been partially achieved so far and Linda's ambitions for the future. So kia ora, Linda, and welcome to Deathwalker's Guide to Life. Kia ora, Kerry. So what I often ask my guests to do at the beginning of an interview is to reflect on what their first experience of death was in their life or, or the, the one that really sticks out to them. So can you take us back down memory lane and, and when did death first make an appearance in your life? First, my first memory of death was a very small baby bird that had fallen out of its nest. And I found it in the churchyard in the little village that I grew up in in the Exmoor National Park in southwest England. And I think we were walking home from church one day and there was this little dead bird on the path. And I picked it up. I was probably about three or four, maybe five years old at the most. Picked it up and was was rubbing it gently, trying to bring it back to life. And mum and dad said, it's dead, put it down, it's yucky. And I said, but, but, you know, it's just a baby. It needs, needs someone looking after it. So uh, I, I wanted to take it home and nurse it and put a hot water bottle under it and look after it, but they wouldn't allow me to do that. So I was, got very upset, and I put it down against the wall of the church, and I made a little bed of dried leaves and grass and such like with it, for it and left it there, hoping its mum would come back and look after it. And, of course, that didn't happen. And the next day, I think it snowed. I remember there was heavy snow all over the village and particularly around the churchyard. By the time the snow had cleared, a week or two later, the baby bird had gone. 
and I managed to convince myself that it had flown away. It had grown up and flown away, but you know, the, the grown-up me knows that didn't happen. Mm, maybe with someone's dinner. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> worms. We're all food for worms. Yeah, yeah. We'll come back to that topic. <laughs> what about uh, with fellow humans? With fellow humans, um, my great grandparents I think were my first experiences of human death I wasn't particularly close to them uh, we didn't live nearby but I do remember feeling cheated about not being allowed to go to the funeral it was you know mm. me and my siblings were too young and it was a very grown-up affair and everyone was very somber and you know I can't be trusted to be somber enough uh, certainly I couldn't when I was a little kid um, so yeah I wanted to go and I wasn't allowed to go and I was annoyed about that um, the first one that really um, resonated no, re that's the wrong word the first death that uh, had a big impact on me was a boy in my year at high school who died in a car crash and he had been dating my sister um, and uh, yeah that that hit me that you know someone my age could actually die he was probably 15 I don't don't remember exactly um but that was a bit of a shock to my system mm. did that shock make you change the way you your, your relationship with death do you think or did it was it a shock and then you recovered from that and then I'm just curious in sort of where the roots were for I mean I it's a common experience and, and a number of my guests on this show have recounted experiences like the one you did of not being able to go to a funeral of a of mm. an elderly relative and 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 that sort of planting a seed of indignation in there that sort of motivated more their involvement in in death work and, and all elements to do with death and dying afterwards. Yeah, there was something about the secrecy involved that um, that irritated me. Uh, I, don't, I don't like secrecy in general, but as a young kid, I was very curious. I wanted to know everything. I still want to know everything. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit more resigned to the fact that I'll never know everything. But back then, I wanted to know what was going on, and I, um, I didn't like secrets being kept from information being held back, as if I were being protected from something. Um, I, I didn't really understand. I still don't understand what people were trying to protect me from. Was you know, yeah. I, I still don't really understand that. Um, but but it has had an impact on how I deal with funerals now and how I support families in dealing with funerals. Insofar as I actively encourage them to bring the children along, to talk with the children, to let the children see grandma lying out there or, or whatever, um, to be involved in the whole process. It's a much healthier way to deal with death. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Before we talk more about Living Legacies and, and when you founded it, I'm just interested in, because obviously you grew up in the in the UK mm. and you moved to New Zealand. So just tell us, I'm, I'm interested in your reflections on what, how, if the culture around death and dying was any different between, you know, your experience growing up in the UK versus when you arrived in New Zealand. I arrived in New Zealand when I was 21 and I'd had really very little experience of death and dying up until that point, so I can't make a very accurate comparison. Sure. Um, uh, vaguely, I could say that New Zealand deals with it better in most regards, a little bit less 
prim and proper, a little bit less pomp and ceremony, uh, a little bit less hushed whispers and um, reverence. Uh, yeah, generally speaking. Mm. But that's that's very much a generalisation. Each family, each culture, each whānau will we'll deal with it differently. And uh, and also it's it changes through the years. I've been here quite a long time now and the way the funerals are done nowadays is very different from how it was done 30 or 40 years ago. And the older generation have died or are dying and the way they want it done is not necessarily the way that my generation or a younger generation does it or would do it. Mm. And part of what I do is... is um, freeing people up from the traditions you know they to to help people realize they don't have to do it this way just because that's the way it was when their grandparents died doesn't mean they have to do it that way anymore yeah so tell us about the you know, what happened in your life that what was the driving motivation for you founding living legacies more than 21 years ago now mm. and you were way ahead of your time in terms of being a natural death care worker so yeah take us back yeah well it was definitely the um the first natural funeral company in in new zealand um and i was very much pushing something uphill <laughs> at the time um, i got treated a bit like a leper and funeral directors thought i was crazy and most of my family thought i was crazy as well and maybe i am um I don't think you are. <laughs> At the time, I was parenting teenagers, and I wanted to create some kind of a business that would make a difference to their future. Um, and it needed to be something that utilized my counseling training, but wasn't exclusively counseling. It needed to be something that would have a really good environmental impact and change, change something in regards to the, the planet and how we treat the planet and it needed to be something that was different and uh, not already happening I didn't want to set up in competition with Joe Bloggs down the road I wanted to do something completely different that didn't already exist to offer a, a, a newer better different alternative and I, I wrestled with the you know the what am I going to do with my life when I grow up sort of thing for a year or two you know considering various options and and so on. Wanted, also wanted to do something that I could show my kids that they could be whoever they wanted to be. You know, they didn't have to just leave school and go to university, or they didn't have to leave school and get a job in an orchard or a shop or an office or whatever, but they could create for themselves their own lives. And I think I succeeded in that. Mm. Um, so by a process of elimination, it became clear that natural funerals was... Um, part of at least what I needed to be doing because it wasn't available here no one had ever heard the term before just didn't exist and it did look, use my counseling training and potentially could make a difference to the planet and then when I realized that that was it it sort of um I rejected the idea and I, I thought no I can't, I can't do this I don't I haven't been to hardly any funerals I I don't I've never seen a dead body I have no training I I, I don't know enough about this but but the idea sort of grabbed me by the throat and wouldn't put me down and after a few months of doing research and looking around and considering options, I thought, yeah, actually, this is my calling. This is what I need to be doing with my life, or at least the next part of my life. Maybe not all of my life, but some of my life. And as you say, it's been 21 years now. Um, 
And you spent some time um, studying what was happening overseas. Tell us about that part of it, because was that around the time you founded Living Legacies or sometime into into running the business? It was a bit later than that. Yeah. Uh, I did a lot of research online, <clears throat> although, of course, 20 years ago, the websites were not quite so available and <laughs> the internet was a lot slower and the information was harder to get. I remember ordering a couple of books from the UK that, you know, that arrived in the post a few weeks later. That was how information travelled back then. Um, but in, when was it, 2007 or 2008, I think... I won a Winston Churchill Memorial Fellowship to go to, to Britain and research natural burial parks and the green funeral industry. So I spent three months travelling around Britain, met, met, met lots of people who were doing the work that I was doing by that stage. I uh, went to lots of natural burial parks and compared them and wrote reports and met green funeral directors and had a thoroughly fabulous, very educational time. Also learned how to weave willow coffins while I was there, which was fantastic. And came back and um, yeah, wrote reports for the Winston Churchill Fellowship. The report is available on my website still. And uh, yeah, that gave me a lot more um, motivation and enthusiasm for promoting natural burial parks here because at that stage there was still none in New Zealand. We now have two in the Tasman district, uh, three in the Tasman district, two in Nelson and many others across the country, which is just wonderful. Mm. Mm. And you tell us about your involvement in setting up the one here in Motueka. Ah, yeah, well, that was quite a slow, painful process. Um, (laughs) I did a lot of writing um, submissions to the draft annual plan every year, and they all got sort of filed, (laughs) filed. Occasionally a report got written, but there was no action. Um... And after a while, I managed to make contact with Beryl Wilkes, who is the manager of Parks and Reserves here. She's the person responsible for cemeteries in the Tasman district. And when I got to actually sit down in her office with her and tell her what I was about, she said, yes, we can do this. Fantastic. Great idea. And within a year or two, she'd made it all happen. And that was educational for me in itself. Find the key person and talk to them. Don't waste time talking with the mayor or the councillors or lobbying organisations. Just find the key person and talk to them. Mm -hmm. And so there's there's a natural burial ground over in Golden Bay. Where's the third one in Tasman? Uh, Spring Grove. Okay. Where's Spring Grove? <laughs> um, it's near Brightwater, Wakefield okay, sort okay. of area. Yeah. I'm, I'm not actually 100% sure it's opened yet. It was on the cards to open and there was some resistance from neighbours, of, of residents a few years ago. But I'm pretty sure it has opened since then. Mm. And uh, yeah, there was one in Takika, a Rototai Cemetery and one in, here in Motueka near the estuary. Mm. Great. So let's just go back again to the beginning of Living Legacies. And when... Can you tell us about your first experience of supporting a family to do death differently and to um, support them through the process? And what was this sort of, you know, I mean, have you got a a, a particular moment where you went, yeah, I'm on the right track here and and this, this work is important and this is how I can help? Yes, although it wasn't the first funeral I did. It wasn't the first family. Um, In fact, I can't even remember exactly at what point it happened but there were points where uh, I was working in the family home with the the family and they 
recognized that they they needed my help with this they they were unconfident they were grieving they were a bit stressed you know and just having someone there who can be calm and knows what they're doing made a huge difference and it gave them the confidence to care for the body or to fill in the forms or to plan a ceremony or to you know the things that needed to be done Mm. Uh, and what's been particularly gratifying over the years is when the same family uh, they, you know, one one elderly parent, for example, dies, and they enlist my help to help with the whole process. And then a few years later, the other parent dies, and they already know what to do. They don't need my help. They've got the book. They've been there. They've done that. They know what to do. And then afterwards, they write to me say it was really helpful. We knew exactly what to do. It was mm. so unstressful. It was just great. Thank you for your help. Mm. I love it when that happens. And a big part of what I'm doing is empowering people to do that themselves. Yeah, and I can imagine how rewarding that is, but how very different it is to the mainstream funeral industry, mm. which um, you know is all focused on economic returns and would not want that to happen Mm -hmm. that's right yeah (laughs) Yeah. we don't want to empower people no no yeah yeah (laughs) so um so where are you at now with living legacies i believe you're going to sort of give it a bit of a new a new lease of life or you're working on um some new material uh, information about the business that people can access tell us a bit more about that yeah, so a couple of years ago, my website got hacked and then it got blacklisted by Google, which wasn't very helpful. And then COVID happened and I was in a different space in my life. And so I didn't do anything with it. It just sort of, it rotted. Um, but I never let go of it. I've done you know a few funerals during that time, but I haven't been promoting it. This year, I've just had the website rebuilt. I've just got some new business cards printed. Uh, in November, I'm running a workshop here in the community house. Um, which is for people who want to come and learn in advance about what they need to know. Oh, fantastic. I didn't know that. Tell us more about the workshop. When is it and how Um, long does it go for? It's November the 6th. Oh, Um, that's my birthday. Oh, cool. You can come. (laughs) You you get a freebie for your birthday. (laughs) It's at 2 o'clock here at the community house. Um, It's $50 per person, and people can go through my website to email me to make contact if they're keen to come they will learn you know, how and why to plan and arrange their own or their loved ones natural funeral and you know all, all sorts of other interesting things fantastic how long does the workshop go for the afternoon or um, usually two to three hours okay. it depends how many people come and how many questions they have yeah. i can talk on this subject for hours but most people will switch off after two or three hours <laughs> <laughs> now that's great and of course i will put the link to your website up on the Deathwalkers Guide to Life dot com cool. website, so people can jump on there too, or go directly to yours, and we'll get we'll get all that up at the end of the show. Thank you. Uh, okay, so how has your how if at all? Because of course, natural death care and natural funerals is sort of going back to the more traditional ways of doing things before the funeral industry mm. came along and and. Uh, developed more expensive ways of doing everything and and more less environmentally friendly ways but have there been any sort of significant changes in in the in the movement apart from the fact that it has grown and that more people are interested in it now over the past 21 years that you can think of like are there any sort of i mean i guess i'm thinking about things like there are potentially some new ways of uh, body disposal that may be available 
at some point in New Zealand that are looking like happening elsewhere in the world, for example. That Yeah. Mm. Yeah, things have changed. Um, things change slowly and in the death care industry things change particularly slowly because people have natural resistance to wanting to even discuss it or think about it. Um, some things that have happened, well, the main one is that we now have natural burial parks here, which wasn't the case 20 years ago. Um, what else has happened? The, the, there, are, there are plenty of, I wouldn't say plenty, there are some people doing natural death care, uh, including the death walkers, um, and more, more people are interested in the idea. Maybe it's my generation, the, you know, the older, the, the pre-baby boomers are dying off, and the baby boomers, which is my generation, um, do things differently you know we did home birth differently we did various other things along the way differently so people are more open to what i offer nowadays than they were 21 years ago and uh yes that nowadays they say oh what a great idea i didn't know this was an option and it's always actually been an option but they just didn't know mm. uh what else has changed Funeral directors, to some degree, have changed. I see quite a few of them offering, inverted commas, eco-coffins, which tend to, seems to mean more like economic rather than ecologic, <laughs> but, but never mind. Mm. Um, what, the, what coffins are made of matters a lot, especially if it's going to be cremated. So and most of the cheap coffins that you'll get at a funeral directors, and some of the expensive ones too, are made of MDF, which is very toxic, especially when it's burnt. Uh, and they're often covered with a veneer so that they look like walnut or oak or rimu, but they're MDF. Uh, so, yeah, buyer beware is, is very relevant here. People need to ask, ask the difficult questions while they're well and healthy and happy because it's really hard to ask the difficult questions when you're stressed or you're dying or you're grieving. Mm. Um, and that's that would be my main message for anyone. You know, do this stuff while, you, while you're well. Well, in fact, it's the whole ethos of this show too. Um, right. Yeah, so yeah, good. we're very aligned on that. Mm. Uh, so do you have a particular, for when for natural burials, do you have a particular supplier of um, caskets or do you tend to use shrouds? Or um, Most people don't want a shroud. A lot of mm. people say they want a shroud, but when it actually comes to it, often that person who said that is already dead and the family say, no, no, she needs to be in a coffin. Uh, I have a, 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 a coffin maker who lives nearby who makes coffins for me. I can also use use the um, lovely willow woven willow ones that are made in Golden Bay and there are others in the North Island that are produced specifically for natural burials that I can also access. Mm. Yeah and just as a reminder for um, our listeners what are the key differences between a natural burial and a regular burial apart from you know what the body is um, in at the time? Right apart from the coffin. Yeah. <laughs> Um, partly it's a shallower grave. Um, uh, if the body is six feet down, it's out of reach of all the microbes in the topsoil and subsoil. So it's just not not useful in any way. It's not adding anything to the soil, uh, to, the, to the environment. So in a shallower grave, the body can be accessed. Um, they are unembalmed bodies, so we're not adding um, chemicals, chemicals, mm. preservatives, sterilizers, etc., to the soil. Mm -hmm. And usually, a tree or something 
can be planted on the grave rather than a, a big concrete tombstone. Also, families more actively involved in the whole process as well. Yeah. People are waking up to the to the reality that cremation is not environmentally friendly. It uses a lot of um, fossil fuels to turn all the lovely nutrients in your in our juicy bodies into toxic air pollution. Mm. Um, some people still choose cremation, I think largely because it's cheaper. They also think it's simpler, but it's not. It's, mu- it's a more complex process. It has another layer of red tape in there because once the body's been cremated, there's no way of um, forensically examining it. Again, if they're you know, somewhere down the line, there was accusations of foul play. A body can be dug up, but not once it's been cremated. So there's another safety level of, of um, bureaucracy in there. It makes it quite complicated relative to burial. Mm. So you made a submission to the review of the New Zealand Burial and Cremation Act, mm. 1960. Oh, was it 64 or 62? I can't remember. doesn't matter. Anyway, it's a very 64. old piece of legislation. Mm. Um, and your submission to it when the, they were called was about five or six years ago. Yeah. So the change process is very slow on that front too. Mm. But can you just, I mean, obviously without going into too much detail, tell us about some of the key things that you think need to to change when you made that submission. Um, Mm. The main one was about natural burial parks. At the moment, or or at the time, I think still at the moment, um, burials can only happen in a designated burial ground, which are usually run by either churches or councils. And nearly all, maybe all, of the natural burial parks that I'm aware of are set-aside areas in mainstream cemeteries, uh, which is better than not having a natural burial park, but it's also rather limiting. It's sort of a step in the right direction. Uh, so part of my submission was about uh, opening that up so that people can be buried on private land, so that private landowners could open up a small um natural burial park themselves as is happening in britain a lot and uh yeah just opening up the whole idea of how we dispose of dead bodies at the the time and and i think still at the moment it's still limited to cremation and mainstream burial Mm. and we need to have more options yeah well in fact i think in the united states it's looking very close or maybe it's already happened that there is a composting yeah. option yeah it you. has already happened it has and happened. we'd love it'd be fabulous to have that option here yeah yeah great so what would you say is your key message that i mean you you, you actually just said this i remember now you said the key message is that you need to make decisions about this stuff when you're still healthy and well. Yeah. But what what are some of the other things, takeaway messages that listeners might consider from your experience of, you know, 21 years of supporting families and, and uh, who are grieving and saying goodbye to their loved ones? Mm. Well, there's lots really, but mm. uh, communication is is really key it's all very well to make decisions for yourself about what you'd like but if you don't communicate that to your next of kin or your family then it's it's lost once you're dead um i recommend people have um family meetings maybe once a a year even because people's plans and ideas change uh everybody get together and talk about death what would you like when on your funeral? What music would you like played? Do you want to be buried or cremated? What outfit do you want to wear? Those sorts of things. Um, 
so yeah so that when when it happens and it's not an if it's a when everybody knows what to do there's no argument there's no quarrels there's no confusion she said she wanted to be buried she said she wanted this song she said she wanted no religion she said she wanted to be in her pajamas for example um and we're going to make that happen and usually they do and those are the funerals that go really smoothly the ones where the family talk about it and work together to make everyone's to meet everyone's needs I, I can't stress that enough really it's just so important because if one person's left out say this one one sibling or one child who's in the other side of the world they can turn up and say no she told me 40 years ago she wanted to be cremated and then there's, you know, there's a big argument that takes place that that person may not have seen mum for 15 years or whatever. Um, make your wishes clear to mm. your family. Discuss it with them and find out what they want too because you don't know in what order everyone's going to die. It may not be the oldest first, usually is, but it's not always. I totally uh, support the suggestion that conversations happen that, and ideally it's, it is a conversation around the table. Are there? Do you recommend people document their wishes? I mean, some Absolutely. people put those things in the in the will, but often the will's not dealt with until a few days. You know, not immediately yeah. at the moment of death. So it's good to have a separate document, isn't it? Saying yeah, what, what your end of life wishes are. Yeah, definitely. Um, write it in a letter to your loved ones and give them all a copy. And if you change it somewhere down the line, update it and and give them another copy. Don't put it in the will because the will is a legally binding document, but your funeral wishes are not. And the, fun the, the will isn't going to be read for days, if not weeks, after the funeral. So people need to be prepared at the time when somebody's actually dying and, and or dead to know what to do, who to call, what, what are you going to do. Mm -hmm. Great. The other, thing, the other thing that is important is um, enduring power of attorney and advanced care planning. Um, you know, even before you die, you, that somebody needs to make decisions if you're unable to yourself about uh, what point do they turn off ventilators or what treatments do you want or not want? Do you want to be resuscitated if your heart stops? Things like that. This is what advanced care planning is about and it's really important. It can make life much easier, much less stressful uh, for those who have to make those decisions on your behalf if they, uh, if circumstances. And is that a service it. that Living Legacies provides, assisting people with those documents? I can assist with the, those documents, but there are um, community health nurses who specialise in this. There is a, There are documents, uh, little booklets available here at Community House uh, from Citizens Advice Bureaus, from doctor's surgeries. Uh, pick up a booklet and fill it in to best of your ability. Discuss it with your GP because they're the ones who will be um, acting on your wishes regarding health at the end of life. Mm. Great. It's very important to do. Fantastic. So from those very serious and important documents to the choice of music at your funeral. So mm -hmm. that's my last, final question for you today, Linda, which I ask all my guests, <laughs> and that is to think of a song that you would like played at your own funeral wake or the celebration of your life. And I'm putting together a playlist that people can listen to. On the cool. website. So, what what's a song that you would like played? Towns Van Zant, "To Live Is to Fly." Towns Van, Towns Van Zant is Towns the name of the Van songwriter. Zandt. Yeah, it was also recorded by John Prine, I think, and maybe other people. Yeah, but the song is called "To Live Is to Fly." 
Oh, fantastic. I look forward to finding it and adding it to the playlist. It's a fabulous song. Thank you very much. (laughs) So thanks very much for joining me on today's show. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. Thank you. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland, and I've just been speaking with Linda Hanna. It's now time for Death on Screen. And today I want to tell you all about the 52-minute documentary Living in the Time of Dying. This film was made by debut doco maker Michael Shaw, who sold his house to make the film after deciding that it would serve as his purpose, a purpose that, in these times, he said felt like a life raft. Ironically, but perhaps unavoidably, it sees him fly across the world to interview some of our top thought leaders on preparing for the end of civilization as we know it. The documentary features interviews with people like Catherine Ingram, who I spoke about earlier in today's show, as well as Jem Bendel, the author of Deep Adaptation, and First Nations leader Stan Rushworth, and finally award-winning journalist and author Dar Jamal. These interviews, which provide convincing evidence that the end of colonisation, capitalism and consumption are necessary to ensure we have a future on Earth, are interspersed with protest footage and stunning images of our natural world. All of the interviewees invite us to embrace a different way of being. They express a common wish to unite us, not with false hope but with a commitment to living fully and engaging in efforts to reduce our carbon emissions. Their testimonies weave together a compelling argument that we need to learn how to hold each other. I particularly love Bendel's reference to the analogy of how we can extend the glide. And I'm just going to play you a very brief extract from the film where he explains what that is. We've got to, we've got to be okay in the uncertainty and the emotional difficulty. We've got to be okay ourselves and with each other. That's okay. That's normal to be confused and to feel pain in this context and learn how to hold each other in that and in, in that calmer way then start to explore so what do we do or what do we stop doing um, because I realize a lot of people would just want quick solutions like oh oh no okay what do we do where do we run who do we blame who do we fight is that kind of reaction and so I wanted to help create something that invites a different way of being uh, and one outback pilot, she told me, yeah, you're talking about extending the glide. Ah, yeah. I love this analogy. And, go on, yeah. and she said, well, yeah, like if, you, if, you, if your engine cuts out, you've got problems, your first thing to do is extend the glide because you, you have two things, you know, you might suddenly, gives you time to maybe kickstart the engines or solve whatever technical problem you've got, or, or you're also trying to um, look for a safer place to land. Um, and maybe the third thing is to give yourself time to, uh, if you can't call home and say goodbye, um, just process your life and uh, say thank you, have some gratitude for the experience of your life. 
You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life and that was Jim Bendel speaking with Michael Shaw in his documentary Living in the Time of Dying. And as the daughter of a glider pilot, I can certainly appreciate the analogy of extending the glide. In the end, Michael Shaw's key question in this film is, how can I stay open to the beauty in the world as the changes arrive? And I believe he provides a convincing answer. And the added bonus is that it essentially gives us the freedom to live life more fully. I want to mihi to my friend Bieta Meyer for letting me know about this astonishing film. And I do urge you once again, not only to read Facing Extinction, but to watch this film. Maybe read the essay first and watch the film later because it might leave you feeling a little lighter emotionally. As Kent Deal has commented, it is hard to come to find purpose in a world experiencing collapse. One needs to have some time to process the emotions and the loss. Don't take too long though, as now is the time of action. Grief is appropriate in small measure, but do not grieve for loss we have not experienced yet. Our actions now will specifically define our future and the future of all life on earth. We can understand the failure and move forward. As I mentioned earlier in today's show, in episode one, which featured Becky or Jenison, we explored anticipatory grief. I'm coming to realise that anticipatory grief does come at a cost, as of course does optimism. I'm not sure I feel optimistic about much anymore. I simply look for what's best in each moment, in each person, and in each situation. And maybe it's time to rethink that old saying, live life like there's no tomorrow. We've come to the end of today's show. You've been listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland. Find out more about the show and catch up on previous episodes at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Once again, Kamihi, a big thank you to Tasman District Creative Community Scheme for supporting the show. Matiwa. See you next time. podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show first broadcast on fresh fm the top of the south's community access media station with support from new zealand on air the funding of access media makes these podcasts possible to find similar programs by other community access media stations go online to accessmedia.nz